the title of my lecture is Steadfast Love, Developing Secure Attachment with God. Um, this is something I've been thinking about a lot this past year, but okay. So yeah, like I said, tonight, we're going to be talking about attachment theory. And I know using the word theory, it makes it sound like advanced science, but don't worry, even Clark will understand it. I'm pretty sure. Um, and I first started reading about attachment theory about a year ago. I had had a particularly anxious spiral in one of my close friendships and I just couldn't stop obsessively worrying and analyzing. I kept thinking, what is wrong with me? It's not the first time I've thought this. <laughs> um, but when the pandemic came and the lockdown along with it, I had a lot of time on my hands. So I picked up a copy of the book Attached. Here it is. The cover looks, makes it look worse than it actually is. Um, but it's a, it's a layman's primer on attachment theory, um, primarily in romantic relationships. I have a friend with a background in psychology who often had referenced concepts from attachment theory, but I hadn't looked into it for myself. Uh, but as I read, I quickly identified patterns that described my re relationship preoccupations pretty exactly. Check, 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 and check. <laughs> and I experienced relief reading this there's a reason I feel this way, I'm not crazy. But I also thought, wow, I have a real problem. I don't know what to do. Maybe you've had this feeling before when you finally identify a pattern that you've been stuck in and it's helpful to name it, but it's also daunting to know how to address it. Now I found the book so helpful in identifying the basics of attachment theory. The whole time I was reading it, I kept thinking, well, what does this mean for me as a Christian? The book put a lot of emphasis on a romantic relationship to meet our secure attachment needs. But I've been single my whole life, spoiler. <laughs> and even if I weren't, I know that I can't expect anyone to provide me with the level of security the book describes. There's a lot of emphasis on uh, finding happiness through a secure romantic relationship. My relationship with God should be the primary source of security. I've been told this again and again, probably most of you have as well, but often it hasn't been. Often my relationship with God has been yet another place. I worry and overanalyze, trying my hardest to please, then beating myself up when I fail. And often if I'm honest, it's been a source of disappointment and even loneliness. So my guiding question this past year has been, what does secure attachment with God look like? My theory, and maybe other people have this theory, but I don't know yet, <laughs> is that our attachment style with God has a strong correlation with how we attach to humans. So if I'm right, developing a secure attachment with God will in turn help us to find more stability and contentment in our human relationships. So this is what this talk is going to look like. First, I'm going to give you a crash course on attachment theory. And Elise will put up her hand and correct me. <laughs> then I'm going to show how God demonstrates secure attachment. And finally, I'm going to look at how we can live into secure attachment with God and with each other. Does that make sense? Everyone on board? Let's do this. <laughs> okay, so this is Attachment Theory 101. Um, I'm going to simplify this quite a bit because I don't have a lot of space or time, but hopefully this will give us enough to get going and just give you a primer to understand what I'm talking about. So psychologists first began developing attachment theory in the 40s and 50s, and it was around how infants bonded with their mothers or their primary caregivers. They discovered that bonding with especially one individual helps infants thrive, although they can bond with many, there's usually one particular caregiver. 
And even if infants have all their physical needs taken care of, if the bonding isn't intact, they won't develop properly. In 1978, research, researchers performed a well-known experiment called the strange situation test. So in this experiment, um, a mother and her young child entered a room that contained toys and a research assistant. The mother would play with the child for a while, then after a while she would leave the room. The research assistant would then attempt to engage with the child, and after a while the mother would return. So researchers observed how the child responded to the mother's return. Some children ran to their mothers to be comforted and were quickly able to calm down once the mother reassured them. The second set also looked for soothing, but they weren't able to calm down with a normal amount of comforting. They just kept crying. The third set of children seemed indifferent to their mother's reappearance, but when researchers measured, their heart rate was actually going up, even though they didn't seem to pay attention to their mother or very little. So these three responses indicate three different forms of attachment. The first is secure, and this is the ideal state in which the child seeks comfort and is able to receive it easily. And the second is anxious or ambivalent attachment where the child wants comfort but can't receive it. The third is avoidant where the child prefers to comfort herself rather than try to receive soothing from her caregiver. There's also a fourth category which is like a combination of anxious and avoidant but it's more rare so I'm not gonna be talking about it directly in this lecture. Um, I also just want to mention that people use different terms for these forms of attachment, but anxious, avoidant, and secure just seem the most straightforward to me. And that's what this book uses as well. Um, okay, so attachment theory tells us that infants need caregivers who are consistently attuned to their needs. So picking up on their signals of distress and responding appropriately so that they can soothe them and contain their emotions, which is something that infants can't do for themselves. Without this need being met, children will not be able to properly bond with their caregivers and they will struggle to receive comfort effectively. So this is how attachment works in early childhood. But what about adults? Researchers went on to discover that attachment actually functions in a similar way in adult relationships, especially in romantic relationships. Some people are able to express a need for intimacy and to receive someone's closeness. Others long for connection and reassurance, but they spiral into anxiety over any sign that the relationship might be threatened. This is the one I related to. <laughs> a third group struggles to be vulnerable and allow others to know and to get close to them. Again, these types represent secure, anxious, and avoidant attachment styles, same as in the infants. Ironically, anxious and avoidant types most often end up forming relationships with each other. And the weird thing this does is reaffirm both each other's fears of being abandoned and smothered. So how does our attachment style come about? Well, as a study with infants showed, attachment style can be set very early on and parenting was part of this or early child um, caregivers, primary caregivers. A parent or primary caregiver who's absent to smothering or inconsistent can affect how the child learns to attach. The child perceives whether or not the parent is able to calm and comfort them consistently. But this is not the whole story if you're blaming yourself right now for your parenting. <laughs> Um, there's research suggesting that attachment style might also be a genetic for some people. And even events later in life can change one's attachment style. So mm -hmm. someone with a secure attachment style can become avoidant or anxious 
if they go through something traumatic later in life. But by the same token, someone with an insecure attachment style can move towards security. We can change to become more securely attached. The question this begs, the question that I have been begging for myself this past year is how, how do we change? Our Western culture has a tendency to emphasize independence and self-sufficiency. We love stories about people who set off to survive in the wilderness alone, the self-made man. We praise a lifestyle that leaves us free to pick up our bags at any time and connect with whomever we want, however we want. The open road is our culture's holy grail. But attachment theory tells us that trying to be fully independent is a terribly unhealthy goal. We actually need other people to help regulate us. We do need some independence, but we need interdependence too. And the COVID-19 pandemic has showed us how starkly we do in fact need community and close relationships. But with freedom and choice as our culture's greatest goods, we don't have much practice forming stable committed ties. This book Attached posits that we find secure attachment by practicing secure traits such as effective communication and ideally finding a romantic relationship with someone who already has a secure attachment style there in high demand. But does this mean that there's no hope for us singles or for those in a relationship with someone with an insecure attachment style? And even if you have a secure attachment in your romantic relationship, will it be enough? You tell me. <laughs> Human relationships are very important for our secure relating. And so I don't want to undermine that. But if they become our only way of finding security, they can easily become an idol. Then when our friend or our parent or our partner doesn't live up to our expectations or needs for reassurance, we can be crushed and angry. The person we once loved can become our enemy. We need something more for security than simply human relationships. I believe that the Christian God is unique in his capacity to provide us with secure attachment. In the next section, we're going to look at how God created us with attachment needs and created us for primary attachment with him. We'll see God as an example of secure attachment in his nature and in his actions through history. Okay, so this is God and attachment. So first I wanna look at how God's character is a demonstration of secure attachment. And it's important for us to realize that God is neither avoidant nor anxious. People with an avoidant attachment style naturally fear being consumed by someone anxious while people who tend towards anxious attachment fear being abandoned. So when it comes to our relationship with God, we need to know two things. We need to re be reassured that God holds us securely, that deals with the anxiety. But we also need to know that God doesn't force or coerce us. So first, how do we see God's non-avoidance? In Rankin Wilburn's book, Union with Christ, he notes that the Bible is the grand story of God restoring our communion with him. Our secure attachment with God is deeply important to him. And the images that God uses to describe himself in scripture are very often ones around attachment. I can't help but now that I've learned about this, read the whole Bible with this understanding. Over and over again, the Lord is described as full of steadfast love. God is a faithful lover who pursues his faithless beloved. Israel is an abandoned child that God has pity on. In Jeremiah, God says of Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. Is not Ephraim my dear son 
the child in whom I delight. Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him. Throughout the Bible, God demonstrates his steadfast love by making covenants with his people. God made a covenant with Noah to protect humanity. He made a covenant with Abraham to give him land and to bless all nations through his offspring. He makes a covenant with Moses, giving him the law and setting the Israelites apart as his people. He makes a covenant with David, promising that one of David's descendants would reign forever. And finally, he gives us a new covenant through Christ, reconciling us to God. So why did God use covenants? I was talking to Clark about this the other day while we were setting up the trampoline in the backyard. Um, why not just tell us to trust and obey him and leave it at that? He could have done that. So many people claim of marriage that it's just a piece of paper and that commitment shouldn't require tying each other down. But God knows our limitations. He knows that when the going gets rough, we need promises to hold on to, promises with force behind them. He chose his people, Israel, and he has chosen us through Christ. But it's easy to forget that. God's covenants help us to know that he isn't going anywhere. And when our own feelings falter, the covenant we've agreed to helps us stay the course. Covenants are an important part of secure attachment. They allow us to stop worrying whether the other person will leave or stop wondering if we'd be better off somewhere else. Sure, we may think both of those things, but we know that we're committed for better or for worse. Of course, it's often hard for us to understand the reality of God's commitment to us, given how flimsy human covenants have become. Abandonment by parents or spouses happens far too often, but that does not determine the reality of God's faithfulness to us. If you think about it, it is incredible that the God of everything would choose to bind himself to us, to limit himself to keeping his covenants. God chose something better than complete untethered freedom. He chose relationship with us. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 103, describes God as a father with a secure attachment style. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. God is not vindictive trying to get revenge on us. He's compassionate towards our weakness. He's attuned to our needs and he intervenes to care for us. In Jesus, we see the ultimate act of non-avoidance. Rather than stay far off and watch human suffering with complacency, God enters right into the muck of our suffering and takes it on himself. He comes to close the gap in our relationship. And then we get to live out of this new reality of the most secure kind of attachment imaginable, union with Christ. And I'm going to say more about that in a minute. Now, I'm giving this lecture as someone recovering from an anxious attachment style, but does the Bible give reassurance to avoidance too? A problem that I actually have with the book Attached and with what I sometimes hear um, with people talking about attachment theory is that it gives little room for the importance of independence. And of course, it's trying to swing to correct society's emphasis on individualism. But in doing so, I think that it sometimes misses the other side of the coin. We are made for each other, for relationship, but we're also made for solitude and for personal agency. So how can we see God as creating us not only for dependence, but also for independence? Ideally, a child slow, slowly learns to grow in his skills and take on new responsibilities until one day he moves out of home and 
maybe starts his own family. But today we often speak about this problem of helicopter parenting, which is still like a funny image in my head, <laughs> a parent who's a helicopter, but never mind. Um, so this is when children don't have the opportunity to take any risks or make mistakes because their parents are always hovering over them, trying to do everything for them and protect them. In the book, which I spoke on recently, The Coddling of the American Mind, the authors point out that children's brains are primed to need risk to grow. That's why they like to play in ways that are slightly risky. But when parents are overprotective, children don't get the, necess the necessary developmental input and they're actually stunted in their growth. I have a friend whose mom gave him very little space when he was growing up. And as a result, he finds it hard to trust others and give people access to his inner life. He didn't have much choice about maintaining his privacy as a child, so he clings to it as an adult. So is God a helicopter parent? If he's a good father, how does he show us that he values our own agency as well? Well, first, we see that in the creation story, God doesn't just do everything for Adam and Eve. He invites them to be sub-creators exercising dominion. That's dominion, not domination. <laughs> so they name the animals and they tend the garden. They're meant to go forth and multiply to create babies and culture. God doesn't just hand them flutes and vaccines and computers. He invites them to be part of creating these things in an unfolding story. Secondly, we see that God allows humans to make choices for or against him. He allows Adam and Eve to eat the fruit, even though he knows it's going to bring disaster. And in the rest of scripture, God shows up to people in many different ways, but they always have the choice whether to respond. He never takes away their free will or makes them into a puppet. The poet Denise Levertov has a beautiful poem about the Annunciation when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. I'll read a little excerpt here. Aren't there Annunciations of one sort or another in most lives? Some unwillingly undertake great destinies, enact them in sullen pride, uncomprehending. More often, those moments when roads of light and storm open from darkness in a man or woman are turned away from in dread, in a wave of weakness, in despair and with relief. Ordinary lives continue. God does not smite them, but the gates close. The pathway vanishes. So in this poem, we see that there are these moments that God offers to us, these enunciations where God shows up and says, you have a choice um, to move into something greater. But most of us <laughs> reject those things routinely. Um, and God does not smite us, but the doors close and the pathway vanishes. God gives us the opportunity to partner with him in bringing about his kingdom, but he doesn't force us, the choice is ours. And Mary is this perfect example of saying yes to a God who didn't coerce her, unlike many of the contemporary Greek and Roman gods who would just basically rape a woman. Um, he invited her into this relationship with him. Um, so the very nature of God demonstrates secure attachment. God is a trinity, three in one. That means that God is securely attached to himself. He is inherently relational and he was before we ever came along. So what does this mean for us? 
because we are created in God's image, we are made for relationship too. That's one of the things that it means. We are made to be attached, to be interdependent, just as God is. But God as Trinity also tells us something else. God doesn't need us. God already has secure relationship. So he doesn't have to anxiously cling to us, demanding that we fill his needs. God's pursuing isn't forceful or manipulative. And this is also the pattern for our relationships. Compassionate invitation rather than coercion or force. In the cross of Christ, we see both non-avoidance, God coming into the muck with us, as well as non-anxiety. Jesus didn't need people to like him. He didn't trust himself to men. He was willing to face his death with bravery, even when his friends abandoned him. He had his eyes set on a greater goal. So we see that God's character appeals to both our need for dependence and for interdependence. But God will also push at our avoidance as well as our anxiety. He doesn't give us only what we want, but also what we need. So he asks the anxious person to trust his goodness, even when he seems distant. And he asks the avoidance to allow him to come close, even when they'd rather be private and run their own lives. God's character can both reassure us and challenge us in our attachment style. Okay, so this is abiding in Christ. I wanna look at the, this concept as the underlying basis for secure attachment, both to God and in our human relationships. We are going to spend some time with 1 John chapter four. Now let me read a section to you. It's a little bit lengthy, but we'll get into it. Um, so the first one was uh, the three types of attachment. The second yeah. is God. God is a is base. Secure. Yeah. He's the base for security. Now right. this is the third about abiding. abiding in Christ. Yes, thank you, Clark. Um, okay, so this is from First John chapter four. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. God in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Okay, there's lots to unpack in this passage, but there are three things I want to look at. So first, what does God's love look for us look like in light of attachment? Second, how do we relate to God in that love? And third, how does our relationship with God extend to our human relationships? So first about God's love for us. This passage keeps telling us that God is the initiator of love. 
we don't have to earn his love or work up our own love for him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. We love because he first loved us. Our love is always only a response to the love that God has shown us first. So if you have an anxious attachment style, this means that you don't have to constantly be worrying about losing or earning God's love. If you are more avoidant, this proves that God is capable of love, regardless of what you do for him. He doesn't need you to love him for him to love you back. And what this love looks like in action is Jesus coming into the world, choosing to be near us and to suffer with us and for us. And as I said before, this is the epitome of non-avoidance. But not only this, God has given us the Holy Spirit in us closer even than Jesus walking the earth in the flesh. Remember, Jesus said, it's good for me, for you that I leave. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. The spirit is the sign and the means of us abiding in Christ. So Rankin Wilborn explains, becoming a Christian means more than believing Christ did certain things for you long ago. It means that Christ joins his life to yours in such an intimate and comprehensive way that the prevailing metaphor for this union in the Bible is marriage. It's a metaphor, but not only a metaphor, because the Holy Spirit, the bond of this connection is not metaphorical. The Holy Spirit is real which means that you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, Christ has truly made himself one with you. So abiding is the form of our relationship with God. This is me talking now. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And this is such a beautiful image. This, I really have held on to this this past year, especially as I've been thinking about attachment theory. Um, and it's a good year to think about attachment when everything is falling apart around us. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but what could be a more secure attachment than this? We are in God and God is in us. He is at home in us and we are at home in him. It's a beautiful image of hospitality. And it's incredible to me that both God would want to make his home in us and that we are invited to make our home in him. I don't know if you've ever had like this thought's just occurring to me now. If you've ever had like a really fancy friend who has like a really nice house and you feel really embarrassed to invite them over to your house. I've had this experience. And then like, when you go over to theirs, you're like, uh. um, but something like that, where, but you don't feel ashamed. Um, Jesus uses this language, this hospitality kind of language in John 14. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. We will make our home with him. That is so beautiful and mysterious to me. Um, the English medieval mystic Julian of Norwich, whom I talked about also in the fall, experienced this major upheaval in her society and personal life. At least half of her hometown was destroyed by the Black Death, probably including her husband and children, and she herself almost died. There were rioting peasants and political upheaval. It sounds pretty similar, actually, to today. But Julian had this deep conviction of her secure attachment to God, that he made, loves, and keeps all of creation. She beautifully expresses our union with God in this quote. The high goodness of the Trinity is our Lord, and in him we are enclosed, and he in us. We are enclosed in the Father, and we are enclosed in the Son, and we are enclosed in the Holy Ghost. And the Father is enclosed in us, and the Son is enclosed in us and the Holy Ghost is enclosed in us. All mightiness, all wisdom, all goodness, one God, one Lord. Wow. <laughs> this, 
This doesn't mean that we enclose God in exactly the same sense as God encloses us because God is far greater than we are. But it does mean that there's this mutual indwelling that's the epitome of intimacy more than any human relationship could ever provide. And we see what effect this secure attachment has in us in 1 John. Perfect love casts out fear. At the root of insecure attachment is a lack of trust. It involves fear, either the fear of abandonment or the fear of being smothered. And there is no perfect love from humans, from our parents, our spouses, or our friends. Only God's perfect love can drive out fear. When we grow in abiding in Christ, this does wonders for our human relationships too. The Bible gives us many images of what secure human attachment is meant to look like. So we already talked about marriage, then we, we hear that the two shall become one flesh. Of the church, we have this image of a body where all the parts are working together and Christ is the head. We are made to attach to each other, but the basis of this secure attachment is God. A child with a secure attachment to her primary caregiver is able to engage with new things in her environment without fear. So studies have shown that infants actually explore more when their primary caregiver is present because they feel safe. They know they can always return to that caregiver if anything gets scary. And this is the same for us with God. When we have a secure attachment with God, we no longer need to put so much pressure on those around us to reassure us or to give us space. Our identity is held in him. Even if we lose a close relationship, we have a home to return to that can't be shaken by any storm. There is no fear in love. With perfect love, we don't fear losing closeness and we don't fear being suffocated or drained by someone's neediness. We will fail to love God perfectly, but that doesn't mean that he will withhold his love from us. Though God meets the longings of both people with anxious and avoidant attachment, he also challenges both. The anxious attacher needs to learn to trust God even when he seems absent. And the avoidant needs to allow God to come into the locked secret rooms of his heart and trust that God will give more than he takes. So when I first started recognizing my anxious attachment patterns, I felt really overwhelmed. I didn't know how to change them. They seemed so deep rooted. This stuff goes back a long way. I started reading my journal from when I was 11 and I'm like, whoa, okay. <laughs> I've been this way for a long way, a long time. Um, but I came to trust that God had brought these patterns to light for a reason and he would stay with me as I worked through them. And this gave me the security to go to challenging places in my human relationships without worrying that I would totally lose my stability. That is this idea of the secure base that you can venture out from. And, and since then, honestly, I have lost some of my relationships. They're not as close as they used to be. Um, and I have grieved that loss. But I haven't needed to cling and worry like I used to. I don't feel like the house is being shaken and falling apart. With other relationships, I have taken the leap to be more vulnerable and open. And I've experienced a deeper level of trust as a result. I'm not going to lie, it has been scary <laughs> to go through this process. But by allowing those I love to love me, even in my messiness and anxiety, um, it's helped me to understand and to accept God's love more deeply too. The two go together. And this is the mystery of the relationship between God's love and human's love. God teaches us how to love each other and we teach each other how to love and to be loved by God. We can't have one without the other. This is how God has made us. Infants learn about God's love through their parents. 
And it's hard for people to grasp God's love when they don't have that kind of secure parenting. God has made us to know love through human relationships, but all of that love comes from God as its source and its proper end. Without that knowledge, our relationships quickly become idols that we constantly look to for security or try to escape because they're too constrained. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. John tells us that we can't love God without loving each other. This isn't because we're trying to earn God's love by loving others. It's because it's the fabric of reality. This is how love works. Love between the members of the Trinity overflows into love for us and our love for God and his for us overflows into our love for others. That doesn't mean to say it's easy, <laughs> um, but we don't have to grasp and clutch and hold on to whatever love we have because there is always more to be found in Christ. Christ is not limited like our human relationships are. Okay, so this is the, the fifth and final section and it's on practicing secure attachment with God. I love to get practical in my lectures and give people assignments and things to do. Um, so now that we've seen God as one who has created us for attachment and given us his own son and spirit for our deepest attachment needs, how can we practice these concepts in our everyday life? I'm gonna look at a few traits of secure attachers and how we can live into these with God. So these traits are honest communication, rest, appropriate expectations and forgiveness. Can you repeat that? Yeah, honest communication, rest, appropriate expectations and forgiveness. And I'm taking a, these things mostly from this book attached and just trying to figure out how they relate to our relationship with God. Okay, so the first is uh, honest communication. And one of the hallmarks of secure attachment style is clear or effective communication. Um, one who honestly communicates her feelings risks being vulnerable and known. And one who responds to vulnerability with his own vulnerability and reassurance demonstrates the ability to be close without anxiety. So how do we see this in our relationship with God? We see that God has first revealed himself by communicating with us. He has given us his word and his son. God wants us to know what he thinks and feels. And he's honest about his longing sorrow and anger over people rejecting him. He's not the stoic God who's unaffected by our actions. We, I read that scripture earlier where he's talking about Ephraim being his darling son that he's longing for. And he's also not this sort of unknown God that we have to guess how to, how to please and we give sacrifices never knowing if he's gonna be happy with us or not. God doesn't pull any punches in communicating what he wants of us, even when it's something hard. He is not manipulating us behind the scenes and then tricking us. Jesus spells out the cost of taking up our cross and following him. We don't have to read the fine print. He's not manipulating anyone. The choice is ours. So God also invites us to communicate honestly with him. It goes both ways. Throughout the Psalms, Job, Ecclesiastes, the prophets, and in many other examples, we see humans whom God loves and has chosen openly expressing doubts, anger, and fear. The reason that this is a faithful response is that these people bring all their reactions to God and trust him to bear them well. A healthy relationship allows us to express our insecurities while recognizing at the same time that these feelings may not be the full picture. So even when we feel uncertain at the core, we still trust what we know of each other. In the Psalms, we see that David and others pour out their darkest feelings. 
but regularly remind themselves, put your hope in the Lord for you will yet praise him. That's the undergirding reality. Being honest in prayer is essential for us building secure attachment with God. That's how we discover that God can handle everything that we're ashamed or afraid to say. And then we allow God to speak the truth back to us. We don't get defensive or shut down in shame. We practice hearing his voice as loving rather than as threatening. We remind ourselves that Christ is in us and that we can't be separated from his love. I have that written on a piece of paper beside my bed. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Okay, so number two, um, rest. Another aspect of prayer is being able to quietly rest with God. David expresses secure attachment when he says, I do not concern myself with great matters or with things too wonderful for me, but I have stilled and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So this is a child who's securely attached, not squalling for milk, knowing that his mother will meet his needs at the right time. And in a secure relationship, we don't constantly need to be overanalyzing everything. We can just chill and enjoy each other's company. This is chilling with God. We don't have to say the right thing for God to be with us. When we don't have the words, we can just simply rest with God, knowing that he loves us. We can trust who God is, even when we don't know all his reasons for doing what he does. It's hard to cut against the distractions that we face daily, but learning to rest and to be still with God is where we can finally learn who we are in him and know the reality of union with Christ and his spirit at work in us. For me, it's been especially important to not compulsively try and fill all my time with social interactions, but to leave space to be alone with myself and God. So I've set aside time in the week, I call it anti-social Sundays, <laughs> um, to not socialize and to forego some other distractions like, ne like Netflix. And it's not like I'm spending all this time praying, but it helps me remember who I am apart from other people's impressions and expectations of me. And it also reminds me that I'm not alone even when I'm by myself. But if I keep filling up all my time with other people, whether it's texting or hanging out, um, I don't have space to realize that. Okay, so three, having the right expectations. People with a secure attachment style have appropriate expectations. They are neither romantic nor cynical. I have struggled with both of these. So many women around my age have been hurt by the unbiblical promises of purity culture which guaranteed a happy marriage if you simply followed a certain set of rules. Whether still single, divorced, or struggling in their marriages, many of these disillusioned women have chosen to forgo a Christian sexual ethic or have lost faith altogether. They were promised that God could be manipulated into set results, and when they discovered otherwise, the Jenga tower came tumbling down. But what we see in the Bible is that God promises to be with us, to live in us and to let us make our home in him, not to give us everything that we want in this earthly life, even things that we deeply long for and that are good. In human relationships, we have to learn not to be cynical or romantic. On one hand, we can believe that we're better off taking care of ourselves because no one can ever really help us. That's cynicism. On the other hand, we may have this fairy tale illusion that reality can never actually live up to. That's romantic. But the truth recognizes both the reality of suffering and loss in a broken world, along with the beauty of creation, of human love, and of a redeemed relationship with God. So in our relationship with God, we need to allow him not, the freedom to not be the subject of all our demands. 
And yet we also need to believe that he is abiding with us. He can intervene and he is working to transform our heart, our relationships and our world. As Adam Young says, when we say, I'm just being realistic to cover for our cynicism, we negate the resurrection of Christ, which was the least realistic thing of all. Realism still holds out for the hope of something more without denying the fallen world. It's hard to walk this middle ground, hoping yet not seeing. But this is exactly what Paul talks about when he describes faith as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So I recently did this activity. I was just reading um, Psalm 136. And this Psalm tells us the history of Israel. And after every incident or attribute that speaks to God's faithfulness, there's this refrain, his love endures forever. It happens a lot of times in the Psalm. And I, what I decided to do is write out a history of my life in moments where God intervened or sustained me, where I saw God show up using the same refrain, his love endures forever to thank God for his faithfulness. And it's not like it was an exhaustive list of every time God showed up in my life, but I found this a really beautiful way to just meditate on how God has shown up for me over the years. Um, Edith Schaefer talked about these metaphorical signposts when God does something for us, when he shows up and intervenes. And we can look back to these signposts um, and, and have faith that if God has been faithful before, he'll be faithful again. I know that one we often talk about here is, is us getting this house, this property after praying for it for many years. Um, and, and I often think and I remind myself, okay, God showed up in this way, even though right now we've been closed for over four months, God can show up again. Um, so this is just a practical way that you can look back on your life um, with an eye for God's steadfast love and remind yourself when things seem rocky that if he showed up before, he can show up again. Okay, so another trait that secure people exhibit that we find in God as well is forgiveness. Slow to anger and abounding in love is how God reveals himself to Moses. And Jesus prayed for God to forgive the very people who had just hammered nails through his hands and feet. We can practice forgiveness as part of understanding God's love for us and becoming more Christ-like. Marilyn Robinson writes in the novel Gilead, and grace is the great gift. So to be forgiven is only half the gift. The other half is that we can also forgive, restore, and liberate. And therefore, we can feel the will of God enacted through us, which is the great restoration of ourselves to ourselves. We can feel the will of God enacted through us. So rather than withdraw, react passive aggressively, or lash out, we can extend grace because we know that God is gracious to us, and he will bring true justice. We don't have to do it. This is how people act who are securely attached to God. Not all the time, but <laughs> we try. They don't demand perfection of others or even of themselves because they're already secure, regardless of how they or others may fail. And this is not to say that boundaries in relationships should be ignored, but rather that bitterness doesn't have to keep its hold on us. We don't have to enact judgment or be crushed by others' judgments of us. We can trust all of this to God. Okay. So those are a few ways to practice secure attachment with God through honest prayer. That's the, the clear communication, resting with God, chilling with God, having the right expectations and forgiving each other. Um, and the book attached gives three tips to practice as a secure attacher. Be available, don't interfere and encourage. And of course, this is talking about human relationships, but we can see these three traits and how God interacts with us. 
The first is to be emotionally available and welcome closeness and vulnerability. And as we've seen, God doesn't shy away from expressing his emotions or inviting ours. He actively seeks closeness with us, even at a great cost to himself. The second is to not interfere. And this means that we shouldn't constantly be taking over from our loved one, but rather let them have space to grow and to learn for themselves. And likewise, God gives us increasing responsibility as we mature into adulthood and in our spiritual lives. He delights in our creative works and in our healthy relationships. And the final trait is encouragement. God isn't a father who can never be pleased and only uses harsh words to motivate us. Rather, we love because he first loved us. He first reached out to us. So if you start to look at your attachment style, I guarantee you it will shed light on your relationship with God. I realize that these two are very intertwined for me and I think they are for all of us. I believe that our relationship with God and our relationship with others are inextricable. It's a chicken and egg situation. Do others teach us how to be loved and to love and to be loved by God, or does God teach us how to love and be loved by others? Well, it's both. So I talked to a friend recently about attachment styles and right away he started to see his, his own patterns and experiencing and then started to experience the same overwhelming feelings that I had. He asked me, is it possible to change? And I said, yes, it is. I can truly say that I've experienced deep change in the way I relate to and attach with both God and others. And it only took a year. I feel like I should be on an infomercial. <laughs> um, and I wanna tell you this though, because I didn't really think it was possible. Honestly, I really didn't. God, but God has helped me to attach securely to him, much more securely, although I'm still growing in my trust. I have found attachment theory to be a really helpful way of thinking in my relationships, both human and divine. And I hope that I have given you a framework to start thinking about these things in your own life too. In working through my own anxious attachment style, I've learned to grow in my trust in both God and for other people. I can take the risk to trust my friends, knowing that when they let me down, I can always return to my secure base in God. I don't have to be devastated, even if I lose a relationship. God already knows and has chosen me. I'm grafted in. I don't have to work super hard to earn God's love. He loved me first and I respond in gratitude. Okay, it's time for, for discussion. So you can ask questions and I'll do my best to, to respond. Um, and I would, I would love to hear too, especially if there's anyone who um, has anything to share about how they've grown in secure attachment with God or how they're working on this. Um, because I feel like I have so much to learn uh, still too, and, and it's different for each person, but you can, you can uh, comment or ask about anything you want as well. So uh, I have a question. Clark has a question. Um, I have several questions, but first I just want to say thank you. I think it was really well laid out and um, I like the movement uh, and examining ideas of how we relate to one another and how that might make us think about God and how God secures that relationship by the story that and the covenant that he laid out and accomplishing Christ and the spirit. So I thought that was really well done and practical at the end. Um, the question I have is about the people that come through here who have experienced tragedy. Mm -hmm. There are so many people who've experienced traumatic events mm -hmm. that have given up their trust in God. Mm -hmm. 
because they feel that God should have been trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And it's a real difficult question sometimes is have they had they unreal expectations right. that God would protect them, that God wouldn't allow evil or something like that. Right. And it's very difficult to know how to speak to it. Um, in thinking of that question, I was thinking about Job. Mm-hmm. And Job, we know behind the scenes why he suffers. With Job, he, he doesn't know what we know. Mm-hmm. And because we know behind the scenes doesn't make it easier for us right. that God would allow the devil to, right. to persecute and torment this righteous man for no reason of his guilt or shame or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But he loses his family, his wealth, his right. honor. He suffers personally. And his, and his wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? Right. And he says, if I, can't, if I can receive good, I can receive bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet out from that, he says, I wish I were never born. Mm-hmm. Why did God allow this? Um, and not to go to the end and all that, but it seems that there's something secure about his relationship there. I mean, it's, I've never looked at that through the lens or the filter of attachment theory, mm-hmm. but it seems that he's working on his expectations of God within a secure attachment, mm-hmm. even though there's something tremendously wrong with the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I have to think about that more, but can you say more about, is it because of unreal expectations? Um, yeah, people who face tragedy and lose trust in God and they think, well, that's not a secure attachment. Right. What would you say? Yeah. I mean, I think this is, Clark starts with me out with the hardest possible questions. <laughs> okay. The problem of suffering. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, I think this is this is something that I've been thinking about a lot too because our relationship with God is not exactly obviously exactly the same as a human relationship. And mm. you know, I was thinking, well, like in a in a marriage, you know, like if the person was like, you know, just like I emptied the bank account, but just trust me. <laughs> like you'd be like, uh, you have to tell me what you're doing. That's not how this works. Um, <laughs> But I mean, I think it is more parallel to a parent-child relationship in terms of like there are things that your child can't understand that you mm-hmm. do have to say like, okay, yeah, I'm, I am doing something for your good here, but you, you have to trust me because I can't explain this all to you right now. So that, I mean, that's not very satisfying to us, but I think that, I think that is, that's part of it, that there's things that we just can't understand right now. Um, and like evil and suffering just, you like it's you like you said this like evil is like a twi- a, it doesn't make sense it inherently doesn't make sense because it's not part of like the logical creative order it's a twisting of those things so i don't i don't want to give an easy answer to, to the problem mm-hmm. of suffering because i don't even know an easy answer but what i will say is that jesus is a lot of the answer you know like i think that mm-hmm. i think it's mp right who says that god doesn't tell us he doesn't solve like where does evil come from but he tells us what he's doing about it so Jesus, God entering into it makes all the difference to say that he's not just like standing far back and he's made a way to securely attach with him. So uh, for, yeah, I mean, I feel like the suffering I've had in my life is pretty minor compared to a lot of people. So I, 
again, I don't want to like undermine the fact that that is like a really hard thing to work through, like actual traumatic events. Um, but for me, like the suffering of Christ and knowing that he is present with us when we're going through suffering, that's to, and that that's a place where we join with Christ, like rather than a place where we're alienated from God, that's been huge for, for, mm -hmm. for me personally. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, yeah, if anyone else has anything to say about that, I can outsource my question to, to you or I don't know anyone. In this I room. mean, as someone who came to Libriism, what's that? Someone else was going to talk. I think I talked over someone. You can, you can go, Melanie. It's fine. I don't know. The other person. As someone who basically came to Libri as a um, walking bundle of attachment issues and trauma and things like that, I think for some people you can look at God first and move that way but for me at least it was the secure community of Labrie where I could break things and mess up and get sick and do really dumb things and be invited back that even opened um, any possibility of seeing any like the secure attachment was even a thing that was possible and so um, and that was a little bit so like with Job you know, he didn't feel secure necessarily. He may have, but God was securely holding him. And it was kind of the same at Libri where I was securely held, even though I was kicking and screaming and not believing anything about anybody liking me, which I mean, you know, that's hard with Clark anyway, but, um, <laughs> but no, I mean, I, and not honestly, like Clark was a big part of that. It's like that extending that unconditional love um, to people who can't make sense of anything is a big part of creating that secure attachment for them and teaching them that security is possible, I guess. Thank you, Melanie. That's so beautiful. And I wish that I had said that <laughs> but, because I, I mean, I think that's so true for me as well. And I'm sure others here that, and I, Libri has been part of that for me, honestly, as well. Like uh, when I first came to Libri, you know, I had a lot of questions and it was kind of the first time that I felt like it was okay like no one was trying to fix me um and it was just like you said okay to be messy and to be where I was um and and I mean I think in other relationships too where I've been able to really be vulnerable you know I, like I started seeing I've seen a counselor this whole past year and that's been really helpful for me to be like okay I can just cry and be a total mess and no one's expecting anything from me um so that's why I say like our how we learn to attach with God and our love for God, like our human relationships teach us how to do that. And God teaches us how to do our human relationships. And you can't have one without the other. Like you, the people who are like, I'm just going to live in a cave and have my relationship with God. Like that's not how we're designed. So, I mean, that's, that's the tragedy of people who grew up in abusive homes and like all these other things is that it's not only ruining the human relationships, it's also ruining our ability to attach with God securely. Um, but I, totally believe that that can be changed both through but like god works through our human relationships to, mm -hmm. to do that you know um yeah <laughs> was lockdown help helpful for me to do that to begin like the anxious to see people yeah yeah I'm, yeah for sure I think I mean I really think that the pandemic has shown like all of us kind of what our attachments are like or, or like our unhealthy attachments to things 
for me, it's to people. <laughs> and so just having to say like, I, and yeah, and especially when I was going through some things with friends that I couldn't go and see, that I wanted to go and see, but I couldn't because I couldn't travel. Um, it, it felt like, okay, I have to ease my hands off of this and I don't know how it's gonna be because my impulse is to always rush into the middle of things and try to fix it. Um, and, and then just having to, yeah, like for months just be pretty much by myself, like building my flower box and reading my books was, was really good. Cause it, it did, it did force me to just like have more space. And I think that like I said to someone recently, it's like sandbagging. I don't know, like that, like I always want to, you know, have enough people and filling my time so that I know I'm not going to be alone and that I have enough people in my life that I won't, the flood won't come and sweep it all away. So when that's like forcefully taken away from you, um, that, that really forces you to look at it. And I was thinking, I forgot about this until I was giving this lecture, but I had this dream about a friend that when I was going through this anxiety with that, like we were in this warm, comforting house together. And then like this soon, and it was in Switzerland, probably Swiss Libri, I don't know. <laughs> and then uh, a tsunami, which doesn't happen in Switzerland, came along and like shook everything, all the houses and like, that one house stood firm. Um, and and I think like that was like my longing for like, this relationship where like nothing was gonna shake it, but like a, a human relationship can't do that. It was actually through letting go of like needing to have that secure, unshakable thing that our relationship has grown much better and much deeper because I'm not putting the, like the pressure on it that it can't sustain, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's been good to recognize, but it's still hard to do. <laughs> Um, yeah, any other thoughts, comments, questions as we're having this, this uh, counseling session for me? <laughs> Linda's got her hand up. Yes. Oh, can Linda. You hear Sorry, I didn't see your hand there. Yes, I can hear can you. Can you hear me? Yeah. I really appreciated this lecture tonight. Um, I thought I was the only one that was experiencing um, anxiety in my relationships. Nope. And I have a few questions. Yeah. Sure. Um, first question: Is there a healthy way of grieving if, uh, when a relationship terminates? Mm. Like, is there some some relationships? I, I I I can look at them and think, yeah, we're just not suitable. We don't have the same interests, different age, whatever background experience, and I can I can walk away and thought that was just a good experience. But there are some other relationships where I feel that I've given yeah. so much yeah. for so long and nothing has come back. And then the relationship is over. Mm. You know, they're happy to take, take whatever I have to give. Right. But then it's over. And I've, yeah, I just, that's why I really, I'm so glad I tuned in tonight because it's really touched a, a nerve in me. Mm. And yeah. Mm. And and I'd like to know that the the, um, the author of the book that you read, attachment. Sure. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's two people, Amir Levine. I'll, I'll hold it up to the screen here. Amir Levine and Rachel S. F. Heller. Um, hopefully, you can see there how it's spelled. It's Amir L E V I N E. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and what was the other? Rachel Hel Rachel Heller H E L L E R. And where did you get the book? 
Um, I got, I just got it from the bookstore downtown. Um, okay. No, it's not, a, it's not a Christian book, but you can just like read it and listen to my lecture again. And then, <laughs> yeah, no, I'd like to get my hands on that book. Thank yeah. you. That's yeah, been very helpful. You're, you're welcome. Just and to I, know that somebody else is experiencing. Yeah. What I've gone through. Yeah, totally. My mind was kind of blown when I first started reading it. Cause I was like, Whoa, yeah. What this describes me. <laughs> uh, people don't talk about those things often. We no, we no people pretend. don't. We just want to pretend like we're cool with things like, you know, friendship ending or whatever. And, and you know, the sad thing is it's happening more and more in churches, not just the outside the church, but it's, it's paramount in the church. Mm-hmm. It really is. I feel, I no longer feel safe in a church. And for the first time in my life, I have no desire to ever return to church ever. What? So what do you say, when you say it's happening in churches, what do you see? What is it? What's happening? Well, well broken relationships, people not willing to commit. Mm-hmm. Um, just there, I just feel very unsafe in church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really tragic. Cause that is like Melanie was saying, uh, like we learn from each other, how to relate to God and church should be the place where we learn that the most of all. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. For me, for me anyway, at this period in my life, I, it's not, I don't, I don't have a desire to go. And, and my relationship with the Lord is very strong. I have a strong devotional life. I have lots of good teaching from online. Um, I spend a lot of time in the word. I'm in about three different Bible studies, again, via Zoom, but they're wonderful Bible studies. And I'm, I feel that I'm growing spiritually. I'm just not growing relationally. And that's okay. My relationship with the Lord is is paramount right now yeah yeah i mean that's great and i mean i hope you can find a way to also you know like receive that from other people because i do think that is really important um to to find that healing in relationship with humans too of course but yeah i mean i think i think most people who've spent a long time in church have been hurt by church in some way probably Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah i I also, you know, I've had, I've had bad experiences and good experiences at church where church has been the source of hurt and of great healing. So uh, I do believe that both are possible. Um, but I, I, I do want to get back to your original question about grieving the end of a relationship. And I don't know if anyone has um, anything to say to that while I think more about it. Uh, just, yeah, what, because I think that, that it's true, like the loss of relationships is part of our reality we're not going to keep every single friend that we make or or every relationship um Mm -hmm. yeah so does anyone have any thoughts about what that looks like um i don't know yeah yeah anyone anyone have anything i just have some quick thoughts just uh it all depends on the relationship Mm -hmm. uh i think that we grieve every relationship uh but there has been some relationships i've grieved and lost and I realized that they were better lost. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I realized, oh, I shouldn't have attached myself to that person. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are sometimes it's uh, really disappointing and really sad. And um, whatever circumstances, like, okay, I, I want to ultimately be reconciled to these relationships in some way, but some reconciliation is not possible. So how might... I forgive and uh, have attached myself in the right way to the relationship, even if they have not attached themselves to me. Right. Right. 
um, by abandoning me right. or by anxiously overattaching. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that grief is is trying to resolve my side of the relationship mm-hmm. with or without him mm-hmm. uh, and trying to do that with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think grief is a part of that. Yeah. Um, but moving through that, you know, move almost through the stages of death, you know, denial, grief, um, and coming to some resolve, even though it's incomplete. Yeah. Um, unless, unless by some miracle or some wonderful way to be reconciled to those relationships. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, that's a really good point. And I think it does, I think you're right. It does depend a lot on the relationship. Um, Julie, did you want to say something? Or okay. is that is that helpful, Linda? Do you have any other thoughts about that? Thanks, Clark, for being my look. <laughs> I, I found it difficult to hear. Oh, okay, Clark was just saying that it it depends on the relationship, but because some in some relationships he recognizes that the attachment was not really a healthy one. Yes. So it, it helps to let go of it sometimes to recognize like that it was maybe not the most healthy relationship yeah. to begin with. Yes. Um, but also that we need to go through these kind of stages of grief and letting go. Um, and, and that it's, we're working through our end of the relationship with God, even when we can't experience restoration of the relationship um, that God can still help us go through that process. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So my most helpful manual on grieving relationships has been this kid's book. A friend sent it to me. Um, And there's a character in it that basically fulfills that role of God of the security in the midst of everything falling apart. So I don't know. The rabbit listened. Who's the author? Um, Corey Dorfield. Corey Dorfield. Okay, great. Thank you. Yes. So it's just, yeah, it's a good I just highly recommend it for grieving relationships and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's only like 20 pages and it's pictures. So, you know, easy read. I, I, I could probably do it. <laughs> Thank you, Melanie. Um, okay, Julia, do, what, what's your question? Um, I was thinking about also like people's capacity. Like mm-hmm. if someone has a very like high social capacity, mm-hmm. which would make them more could it be partly personality that would yeah. become more anxious and then someone has like, like I have a very low capacity. Mm-hmm. So I would probably come across as avoidance, mm-hmm. but I just am very, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, like I would think in the church situation, mm-hmm. you know, for me, small talk after church is like really torture. painful. Yeah. So to me, that would seem avoidant right. in a way where I just, I just am very, I don't want to live out of fear, but right. I'm also just very careful right. because I can see like getting drained. I can see this person; it, it just mm-hmm. keeps expanding, expanding. Yeah, sure. I can't. I can't. Yeah. You know, if I only have Right. Right. I don't know if that has anything to do with. Yeah. No, that's a really good question. I think that like. Yeah. So Julia was asking how what how much personality has to do with attachment style. And she's just saying that as an introvert, she doesn't have as much capacity to reach out to other people. And then that might look like avoidance to some people, but that's just her being careful not to get totally overwhelmed by the demands. Um, and I, I, 
yeah, I haven't read any research about this, but I think personality plays a huge part in this. Um, I think that there, there are ways, we, because you can experience the same, like two kids in a family can grow up uh, mm -hmm. and have opposite attachment styles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this, happened, this happened in my own family. So that shows me that there's like more at play than just parenting, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I think that we will have like an attachment style we will naturally tend towards. So we might go through the same experience and then end up with like a different attachment style. Uh, so I think that's part of it, but I'll also say like any personality can be secure. So you can be introverted and have a secure attachment style and you just have less capacity, but it's like, how do you attach in the relationships that you have chosen? Um, I have, yeah, I have friends who are incredibly social and have really <laughs> unhealthy attachment styles. <laughs> so it's, it, it can, it can go both ways. It's not about capacity. It's about when you do choose a relationship are you able to be secure in that relationship and committed and vulnerable and um trusting and, and all of these things so it, yeah it, it's, it doesn't matter like how many people it is you know um and and if you're you know if you only have a few people in your life is that because you're afraid of being open and vulnerable um but if not then it's totally fine <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so this book actually kind of says he, they call it like the codependency myth because they think that that's a problem actually that we use that language, but I don't know, I, other people may know more about this than I do, but I would say like one thing that they talk a lot about is, yeah, I don't know much about codependency myself, but anxious and avoidant people very often get into relationships together. Um, it's really weird, but it's like we have these self-fulfilling prophecies. So the avoidant person like, is always trying to create space and have freedom. And the anxious person is always wanting security, but for some reason, like the two feed off of each other. And, mm -hmm. and so they're naturally drawn to each other because it just like confirms their worst suspicions <laughs> about the world, which is sad. Um, so that could be like kind of a codependent sort of thing, I guess. I, I mean, I think I've also seen people who are basically like two avoidance when I'm talking about romantic relationships, but it probably relates to friendships too. Two avoidance are like, don't have enough glue to stick together. But I think two anxious people can also kind of devour each other by constantly analyzing and like trying to hash through everything in their relationship and not able to form a secure bond. But one secure person can actually help their partner to become more secure. Um, so like, yeah, studies have shown that there, it's almost the same with like two secure people and as opposed to one secure and one insecure person, mm -hmm. which is, is pretty amazing. So yeah. find those secure people while you can. <laughs> so, uh, I have another comment. Um, I know that there's probably other questions, but just since we've been talking about church and also re relation to what Julie's asking, what Linda asked, we're just talking about what kind of attachment should we have or expect mm -hmm. in Christian community or in church. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, I'm a type of person where I'm more avoidant. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like I'm a secure avoidant, <laughs> but uh, I don't like to disclose a lot. Yeah. But it's not because I don't want to be vulnerable. It's just that I don't feel like there's too many people that I can be vulnerable with. Mm -hmm. Uh, once I find someone that I really trust, then I will be happy to disclose. Right. But I feel that when people go into church and Christian community, their experience with Jesus 
and they just want to be an open book. Right. But we need to not be romantic or idealistic with what Christian community is. Yeah. Because Christians are still sinners. Yeah. And yeah. yes, James says we should confess our sins to one another. Is it John? I can't remember, but uh, someone in the Bible. But you also want to know who doesn't mean that you should confess your sins to every single person. Right. Uh, you need to be wise with whom you confess and, and talking about what certain issues. There was a guy named Elred of Revaux who wrote a book called Spiritual Friendship. Uh, it was a monastic medieval work. And he said that when thinking of spiritual friendship, you should have someone you should disclose something minor mm -hmm. and see if they're trustworthy. Right. <laughs> and if they're trustworthy, you disclose something larger right. and then larger. And it's not because you're being sneaky, it's because you're being wise. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so when thinking about Linda and thinking about others, is let's not, we should not be too idealistic. We need to be realistic that we are sinners mm -hmm. we, where we can confess our sins to one another, but we need to know how to do that and how to be wise in our relationships because that's what establishes security, yeah. not just being open books with everybody. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. Thank you, Clark. I, I appreciate that. And I, I mean, I definitely feel for me, a lot of my work has been in learning like who is, who is health, healthy to have a secure, to try to have a secure attachment with, you know? Um, and I think we don't, there's some people who will just not lay the card, like my colleague describes it as laying down one card and then seeing if they reciprocate and then two more cards, and you know, like a bit at a time. Um, and I think, yeah, people who have an anxious attachment style are often like really do rush into things because they want that intimacy like so badly and to be, to be connected and understood. So that can lead to them being taken advantage of. Um, but then sometimes people who are avoidant just don't lay down any cards at all. And so they're never able to see, you know, that there are people who can be trusted, you know, mm. and I've seen, I've seen both for sure. Um, but, but yeah, like just, just because you have a good initial connection with someone doesn't mean that that person is necessarily trustworthy. Um, so I, I think that would be great for us to talk more about in church is like, I, I was talking with a friend recently, you know, I feel like the only boundaries that got talked about in, in my youth were about sex, <laughs> mm -hmm. but there's a lot of other kinds of boundaries that we also need to talk about. And so, you know, boundaries are not keeping everyone out, but it's letting the right people in at the mm -hmm. right time. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I had a friend say just this week, like, wow, you're so like open about everything. And I'm like, well, no, that's not like, I, there's a lot of things that I'm open and find easy to talk about, but there's other things that I'll only talk to a few people about. So again, that's personality, you know, I like to talk a lot. So it might seem that I'm like more open than I am, um, but there's definitely stuff I'll reserve only for people who really earn my trust. You know, some people find it hard to share like even basic facts about themselves and that takes more trust. Um, but I think also just the fact that I do have a lot of secure relationships helps me to be able to to share a bit more and be like, well, if someone <laughs> like, you know, misuses that, then I have other people who are, it's okay with, so. Mm. Yeah, but, I, and, and so again, I think that's like very wise and, and then also partly like personality thing too. Um, okay, I see Patricia and Greg's hands up. Um, Julia, does that deal with your question? Okay. Um, I don't know who put up their hand first, but I'm gonna choose my aunt because she's related to me, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go for it 
You can, if you can unmute yourself then. Right. Here we go, sorry. Um, thank you, Elizabeth. It was lovely, lovely to hear you, um, such a mature and uh, thoughtful uh, speaker and young woman. First time I've heard your presentation. So thank you so much. Um, I'm just thinking here, um, um, objectively, I have seen so many people in a devastated condition. And, and that's because I'm a divorce lawyer, as, as Elizabeth knows. And so I see people with the attachment that they have, you know, put all the eggs in one basket. And many, many are Christian, Christian families who have come to the place where one party has betrayed the other, or one has just said, I'm done, I'm out of here. I'm no longer attached to you. My heart is somewhere else. It doesn't necessarily have to be another romantic relationship, but I feel like they've gone beyond wherever they were. So, and in my experience in life, I don't think I've seen, well, perhaps I have, but I, I wanna say on a scale of one to 10, I think divorce is right up there as about a number 10 in suffering. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because of the, the, the uh, end of the relationship in which they had totally hoped was, was going to survive. And they've probably been through hard things, you know, for years and managed to weather the storm. And then this one, they can't get over. So in terms of attachment, if you reduce, if you reduce um, the way to stay attached to people to, you know, basically three psychological um, explanations, you are in fact negating, um, you know, it, in a surface way, and I don't want to criticize your, your talk because I think you've clearly shown um, that there are these, these types of attachment theories, but the big difference for Christians can be the Christ factor. And so even if I'm an avoidant and, and you are, um, what was the other one, the, uh, the anxious, and we get to that stage where we're like, oh man, I can't stand her and yeah. I can't stand him. <laughs> yeah. There is that Christ factor that can make all the difference. And you can break through that terrible um, impasse that is about to break your relationship. That is the same for friendships. That is the same for relatives. But I think Elizabeth's point about boundaries is extremely important because you don't have to be ruined by any relationship or abused by any relationship. You need to have a sense of who you are in Christ, or even if you're not a Christian, of your own worth mm -hmm. so that you are not being abused or ruined or used mm -hmm. uh, and et cetera. Mm -hmm. But when you feel secure in yourself, whether or not you're a Christian, but especially if you're a Christian, when you feel that you are loved, that you are forgiven, that you are worthy, then you can go the extra mile. Mm -hmm. You can turn the other cheek. Mm -hmm. You can do th those wonderful teachings that Christ taught us to love others. Mm -hmm. uh, because he has loved us not yeah. because they did the right thing 
not because they uh, are changing. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're the same as they've been for the last 40 years and driving you nuts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but because there is the Holy Spirit working within you that is able to transcend what you can do in your own human strength. Mm -hmm. The second observation that I have made um, to this point in my life is that there are um, stages in life uh, where you, uh, maybe as a kindergartner, an elementary child, you feel rebuffed because you weren't chosen on the volleyball team, mm -hmm. or you feel left out because the girls won't let you skip at noon hour. These are the tiny, the small rebuffs that can add up, add up. Mm -hmm. um, to make you feel somewhat rejected. Mm -hmm. But so you might develop some kind of um, psychological insecurities or the other way, um, bravados, mm -hmm. <laughs> from those kind of little experiences that add up. Mm -hmm. But then you can find, uh, maybe you go on to university and find you do well there and you get a great job and you're esteemed by your professional colleagues. And you begin to change the kind of effect you have on other people. They want to be with you. They want you to uh, mingle with them. They invite you over. So now you're not that little girl that couldn't play hopscotch or skipping. And, uh, and, and on it goes. Things can change. And again, I would say we change by the power of Christ within us. But even if you don't have the power of Christ, uh, you can uh, adapt and change over time. Mm -hmm. And then you get, you know, later in life, um, perhaps you're married, perhaps you're widowed like I am, and you find a total different um, kind of scenario before you. But again, you can adapt to that. And while you're not accepted, I'm not accepted as a couple and invited over to dinner, um, you know, go on the boat with us, this kind of thing. It's quite different when you are a widow. Mm. People do not adapt uh, as easily as inviting your very spontaneous and funny partner with you. And suddenly you don't feel so funny anymore. <laughs> um, but yet, God gives grace. So uh, for, uh, when I realized for the first time, uh, having grown up in a large family, five children, I married young, I had four children, um, always had people around, people around, and now my husband died, all my children were gone, my son died. I'm alone mm -hmm. as never before, mm -hmm. yet Christ is all in all. And it takes some suffering for each one of us to get to that place. I don't think we can get there without some kind of suffering. And the suffering that we experience will be unique and handicrafted by our loving God. So that we sink into Christ, as it were. And so, again, there will be new stages I'm anticipating. Mm -hmm. uh, in life and in my attachment to different people mm -hmm. and to God. I pray God I will go only deeper. Mm -hmm. uh, but and, and there will be other folks in my life to whom I will form secure attachments and they to me. Mm 
-hmm. So those are the two observations or yeah. Yeah, kind of that I have. And thank you again, Elizabeth, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm so glad you could come. And thank you, those are both really helpful and especially you know, with all your experience seeing these things, how people's attachments go. And what I'm thinking of is um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together. I don't know if you read that, but he talks about um, the importance of disillusionment <laughs> and uh, happening quickly in Christian community. Because he says, if we don't get disillusioned fast, we're going to just rely on what we can build as humans and we need the Holy Spirit. So disillusionment is a chance for us to rely on the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I have a friend who, <laughs> whenever she's disappointed in a relationship, she says, disillusioned again, <laughs> because she thinks about that book, you know. And, but I do, that has helped me to remember like, okay, when someone lets me down, like that is a, a time for me to be like, God, what are you trying to teach me? <laughs> you know, and, and, and not to hold, you know, hold it over that person, but to be able to move to more security in, in my relationship with God and, and into loving, stretching to love that person. Um, mm -hmm. and, That's what we're called to do. Yeah, yeah. We are called, we are stretched to love. Yeah, it's hard to do and I'm sure as you've seen it. And do you feel like you've seen relationships where that does happen? Because you mostly see the demise of relationships, but have you seen ones where um, someone loving that kind of sacrificial Christ-like way has actually changed the relationship. Absolutely. And it's not that the relationship gets back together, mm. but divorced parties that I have seen them, the, the one party still loving the other, but having to let them go wow. and all of the devastation that comes with that. Wow. Wow. But the work that Christ has done in them, they are able to forgive to let them go and to forgive themselves for what they have considered a failure mm -hmm. uh, because they held Christian marriage so high in their esteem. Mm -hmm. So I have seen marvelous things happen, but there's been much suffering in it. Right. Yeah. That's, that's really beautiful. And I think that that also relates to Linda's question, you know, about how do you grieve a relationship? Because yeah, sometimes we're not the ones who choose for it to end. That's hard. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Yeah, but yeah, also thank you for your point just about going through these different life stages. And you know, I think God brings us different attachments at different times, and um, right. it's yeah, it's hard to let go of ones that are very dear to us. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I think yeah, and like the thing about suffering is just so hard because it's like you don't choose you don't want to learn things that way nobody wants to learn things that way um mm -hmm. but that is that is often this place where we mo most deeply with Jesus yeah for sure um Greg your hands been up there for a while <laughs> please speak yeah I just um I'm curious to know sort of what other people think I, in terms of this relationship with God how they experience the relationship with God. You know, for myself, it's fairly simplistic in that my relationship with God is about shared experiences. I, I get particularly touched when I see a, a young parent holding their child and obviously just absolutely adoring this child. And I feel a oneness with Christ when I experience that. Or some of these videos you see on TV where people being extraordinarily kind to animals and rescuing animals and, mm -hmm. and various things. But just you know, real extreme um, circumstances of love. And I sort of, 
that I feel that like a shared moment mm. that I have with God. And that's how I, I understand my relationship with God, because I can't understand him in the same way that I see my relationship with my wife or my kids or my grandkids, or I hate to admit this, but even my great grandkids, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's different. And uh, so I'm, I'm cur really curious to know what, how other people see what, what they mean by their relationship with God. Yeah, so so you're kind of talking about like what does this connection look like? How do we experience this kind of connection? Yeah, well, we throw this this expression around a lot. I, mean, I hear this a lot amongst Christians. You know, what's important, you know, was my relationship with God right. and and uh, everything. And I I'm not really really don't know, have any idea how other people actually review or view their relationship with God. Well, how they how how does this look on the ground? How do they live this or feel this in their lives? Yeah, great. Well, open question. Anyone wanna wanna say anything about that? Um, I was just thinking of actually of the word attachment and how Liz, when you were talking, just your view on um, how the secure relationship with God includes that idea of perfect love and of rest and of grace. And when I think of your comment there, Gregor, your question, I think of those pieces and how I personally experience them in terms of there are times in my personal devotional that I don't have to say or do anything. I can just be. And those are times for me as an introvert that are very refreshing. Um, and that's, that is one way that I experience God that probably people wouldn't necessarily see that as a, you know, a, a, what's the right word or the right thought that they wouldn't see that as sort of a typical devotional period to not say or do anything, but actually just to feel the rest of God. Um, at the same time, there's the other side of it very practically in my workplace every day dealing with a whole variety of personalities um, in sometimes very complex and um, challenging situations. And how do I navigate that? Um, so seeking in the moment wisdom and seeking how to apply it to each and every one of these different situations. To me, that is very much uh, living out my relationship with God in a very practical way, even though God may not come into any of those conversations. Mm -hmm. cool. So, but both of those things to me are a way of, and this, this secure attachment to God where it doesn't feel like work. Whereas when I think of the anxious or the avoidant, it feels very much like work to do either of those things. Although I see bits and pieces of myself doing those things as well, like having that kind of attachment as well, both with God and with others. But I recognize the secure one, whether it's with God or with others, the secure attachment when it doesn't feel like work when right. I recognize that I can rest in it, when I can recognize the grace that enables me to do that. Right. Right. That's really beautiful. I like that. that both, one of, one right. of your examples is more kind of uh, not, pa well, I guess sort of passive and the other one's more active, you know, because uh, it shows that both of those can be ways of connecting with God. Um, yeah. Thank you. But it's, so you see, it's, been, it's, it's different than, than your relationship with individuals, individual people. You can't you can't draw a, a parallel between you know a spousal relationship or a parental relationship, you know, or anything. Like I don't question the 
Frank, I, I know this sounds really flippant, but in a lot of ways, I mean it. You know, I don't, I don't question that God loves me. You know, I mean, he made me. Why wouldn't he? You know, I mean, it's, it, it, I start out with it being as simple as that. You know, um, but I never quite fully understand what people mean or even what I mean in a lot of ways when I talk about my relationship with God. You see, the yep. only, only place I could sort of describe it is in shared experiences with, with, with great acts of love. Well, I think, sorry, Julie. I was going to say, for me, like, I, I struggle to be faithful in the Bible, but when I read the Bible, we meet, like, we meet God every time, whether it's Leviticus or Psalms or John, I find, like, whether it's water and dry land or it's just challenge or encouragement or, um, I, I feel like there's a complete trust in the God of the Bible, in the same who he says he is. Yeah, so Julie is just talking about the importance of, of reading scripture and how she's not always good at doing it, but when she does, she really feels you know, refreshed on this deeper level and is able to, to journal uh, with that and that she would not feel connected to God without that. Um, and I don't know if there's anything else <laughs> <I'm summarizing. laughs> um, but yeah, just that's that's a real gift. And I like, like I should be really reading about Balaam. Yeah, right. I should be reading about John, you know, Jesus. Right. And I feel like I'm just trying to be Right. Any part of the Bible God can use. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's God revealing himself to us or right? communicating with us. You don't see any parallels between between that relationship and 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 personal relationships. I mean, I think I think you see the, I think you see the parallel about communication. That's what I was trying to draw in my lecture. Is that mm -hmm. like God is wanting to communicate to us by giving us His Word and to reveal who He is, which is also something we need to do in our human relationships to build trust. You know, is to to actually communicate. <laughs> um, yeah, well, of course, I understand God is communicating with it pretty much all the time through His Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. You know, he, He's He's always there communicating with us. Mm -hmm. I would add to that. Yeah, uh, that, yeah, I mean, when we talk about God as personal, sometimes we get these notions that are over-personalized. Mm -hmm. There was a book called Can You Hear Me Now by Brad Jerzak. I find it a problematic book because, um, and I've heard Brad, I've, I've met Brad, he, um, he came to, to Labrie for a short time. He was a, he's a pastor on the mainland and um but and he came to our ch church on bowen island um against my wishes but he he came and led a prayer retreat or a church retreat and he said that he wanted uh he wanted us to have an empty chair beside us and that jesus would sit there and and then you know uh in a talk he said okay i'm going to read some words 
what does Jesus, what does Jesus look like? And uh, someone said, Oh, Jesus, someone's picking me up by the hand. He goes, that's Jesus. Uh, someone's trying to comfort me, wipe my tears away. That's Jesus. And he just said, that's Jesus to everything. Of course, there was a girl that was from Labrie during in the talk and she was quaking with anger because um, she was so reactive um, to or reactionary to this over personalized, over sentimentalized view of God and of Jesus because um, she was betrayed by that. It's a long story, but um and and but others would also just see God as I grew up thinking that God was just fatalistic, that he was just the sovereign. And he wasn't so personal until I found myself deeply, deeply convicted. And not the kind of guilt or shame that I felt for my father or my mother, but a deep, genuine conviction that I was sinful in need of mercy, in need of his mercy which I would receive in Christ. And so I felt an authentic conviction of love mm-hmm. that was not the same that I received from others. Right. And yet, so God was not fate. God's not over-personalized, but we still need to say that God is personal. Right. And the best way to portray that is through analogies of human relationships. Mm-hmm. Yes, they aren't the same, uh, my brother would say, you know, he's understood more about God by being a father. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't felt that person, mm-hmm. but I have understood that God is a perfect father where I am not. Right. Um, and, um, but Jesus says, you know, God is like a mother hen. Right. God is, God is like a mother who has weaned you and nursed you. Right. Uh, uh, God is a defender. God is a father. God is a parent. And so we have these human analogies because that's the best way uh, in marriage. God is a spurned lover. God is the faithful spouse. Uh, Again and again, we're giving human analogies because that's the best way for us to understand what personal means, but it's not the sum of all of who God is. Yeah. 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 Is that, does that, can you hear that Greg? Yeah, I could. Thank you very much, Clark. Yeah. Yeah, I think that seems to be like what. what it, this whole thing lost. It sounds like Myers Briggs. <laughs> <laughs> but you only have to three to choose from, so it's not as complicated. Not I got the best group, ESTJ. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're, they all think. We're exactly opposite, right? <laughs> <laughs> <The> top marks. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I think too, it just like it bears saying that God interacts with us differently too like there's there's the relationship with god that isn't changed regardless of how we feel about it or like what sort of things we're experiencing so that's that, that's one aspect of it and it seems like greg maybe you're more ask, asking about like what are experiences around that and like there's some overlap but there are also different things depending on who you are as a person um and and like some yeah you know someone like me growing up really charismatic where all the emphasis was on experience. Like I've been very um, grounded by now being part of the Anglican tradition and having like liturgy and things like that. And I've seen, um, and you know, like things that don't change regardless of how my feelings are going. And then other people who've come out of a a more liturgical tradition have needed something that is like more charismatic and more personal (laughs) and and that kind of stuff. So I think kind of God 
God often knows what we need maybe to counterbalance some things. Um, so, or yeah, for, based on our personalities or, or whatever. So um, I don't think it's a one size fits all, uh, even though there is overlap in certain areas too. I'm definitely not a pantheist, but sometimes I think I look at God's love in sort of a pantheistic way. And that's in everything that I'm only able to love because God loves me. You know, I, I see love as a gift from God. I'm glad to know you're not a pantheist, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, does it mean we can 